I don't know about you, but that, that whole distraction element, I find myself in it all the time. You go, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump online for a split second. 35 minutes go by and you forgot why you jumped online, right? Like, there are things that distract us, but the level of consequences for being distracted changes depending on how, what it is you're supposed to be doing. Like, this is why driving and texting is a big deal. It, 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 it can kill a person. So the consequences for texting while driving may be different than the consequences of me trying to jump online, try to get a, ta- a task done, and 30 minutes later I've been distracted by all these other things. So the consequences may be different. In this scenario that, that Sue has just set up with Paul and Peter, there is a distraction among uh, the lives of those who are sitting with a message that is by faith we are saved that could actually derail the whole thing. So you have to understand, and we talked about this last week, Paul's um, fire, if you will, uh, for the reason in which he takes this message to the Galatians. He uses a very intense tone with these people. And it's not Paul being a jerk. It's Paul going, this matters so much. I need you to hear me loud and clear. If you miss this, you miss everything. So with this message that Paul brings, this letter to the Galatian church, last week we talked about it. There are two predominant messages in the world, only two. I save myself or God saves me. Only two messages in this world. I do it myself or God has done it. Only two messages in this world, both with very different outcomes. But the truth is, If I'm saying I save myself, whatever it is from I'm thinking I need to be saved from, whether it's the worst case scenario, we talked about it last week and you can go back and you can watch that. We don't have time to talk about all of the things that we mentioned, but truly the I save myself mentality is all the responsibilities on me for forgiveness, for wholeness, for hope, for rest, for peace. It's all on me. And if I don't do it, it'll never happen. The message of the gospel is that God is the one who is responsible for salvation, for hope, for forgiveness, for peace, for wholeness. And without him, we actually don't have any of the things that we're longing for. We have the substitutes. We have the things that fill fill us up for a little bit, but then they leave us empty and, and wanting and chasing after things again. Paul says there are two messages. I do it myself or God does it. You can see why this is such a big deal in his eyes. Because if the church returns to a mentality of I'll do it myself, they will actually exchange relationship with the living God for rule chasing. Hear me loud and clear. Rule keeping is not the same thing as relationship with God. Because you are someone who can check boxes does not mean you have a living thriving relationship with the creator of the universe. Paul is going to make that, make that case this morning. We're going to learn a lot in, in, in many ways about the fact that Jesus is the work that God has he's given to us in his life is everything for us. Do you know that Jesus's name means the Lord saves? So anytime you say his name, you're actually declaring the rescue plan. 
Anytime you speak Jesus's name out loud, you are agreeing with God's plan. Anytime I'm talking about Jesus, I'm saying out loud, the Lord saves. It's not my rescue plan. It's his rescue plan. I'm not putting my trust in my responsibility and my work. But when I say Jesus's name, I'm actually saying the Lord saves. I'm agreeing with him about his work on my behalf. If the church misses this, she'll miss everything. Paul has been journeying and he has been walking through it with, if you've read through Galatians, the first chapter and into the second chapter, you see Paul kind of just going, here's why you, can, you should listen. Here's why you can pay attention. I've, I've been journeying. I've been meeting with people. I've had private meetings with some of the leaders in Jerusalem. We've talked about this. I've been talking about a message by faith. People are saved. And if that's the case, I want to make sure that what I'm telling the Gentiles is still good. And so the Jews and the Gentiles and, P- and Paul sit down and, and, and they, they have this conversation. And then the disciples, the apostles are like, yes, keep going. He even had a, a, an uncircumcised Gentile with him. And they were like, yeah, he doesn't need to be circumcised. And I'm sure Titus was like, thank God. I didn't know this was that kind of party. So, um, so they all say, look, we know that we are saved by faith, not by the law. Like in the, and if anyone could say we could be saved by the law, it was the Jews. The Jews were like, we've got this, we've got this, we've got relate, we've got, we know who God is, we know, we've got his law, we've got the traditions, we've got the meals, we've got everything. We can be saved apart from faith. But they knew they couldn't. And so they're all in agreement, and this message of salvation by faith is still good to go. Everyone agrees. Now, uh, one of my favorite memes on the internet is when people get sarcastic on Facebook and then somebody posts this meme right here. And I feel like it's an appropriate one. It's the comment section uh, meme. The person who is like, I just came to see this. So the, the whole get your popcorn mentality, people understand that in this generation because you see somebody post something and you are like, oh boy, they just opened the door. Like, I feel like this is a moment that we would pull up a chair and just start eating the popcorn. Paul and Peter's confrontation is recorded and it is a lesson for all of us. How would you like that? Would you love that? Like if a moment of you not getting it was recorded for all the world to see and to discuss, I'm sure you'd love it. Like all of you are dying for this moment in, in life. But what we, Paul does so magnificently is he, he gives us a visual illustration of what he tries to communicate in these last verses in chapter two. So starting in verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. First thing you want to notice is that Paul didn't write an open letter to Peter. He didn't he didn't write a blog. He didn't write a comment. 
He went to his face. We could learn a thing or two about this. We really could. He didn't protest him. He didn't make signs. He just went to Peter because he had a relationship with him and he confronted him. And it is for his good that he does this confrontation. Paul's struggle with Peter was not that he started eating with Gentiles. Paul's struggle is that he stopped eating with Gentiles. And the reason he is so worked up about this is through Peter's stopping eating with Gentile believers, Peter was communicating a different gospel, which we now know, Paul says, is no gospel at all if it is not the true gospel message by faith. Why would it matter that Peter backed away? Why would it matter that Peter was afraid of criticism? Why would backing out of a meal be such a big deal? In Paul's eyes, Peter flipping the script in this way truly communicated a different gospel. Peter ate with Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. This is a big deal. Uh, in, in, in a Jewish person's life, it was either you were a Jew or you were a Gentile. Gentile meaning all other nations except Jews. Over time, the nation of Israel began to pride themselves on their peculiar, peculiar privileges and that they had the law. They had relationship with the one true God, his ways. It was in a way there was a wall going up of us versus them. And as that wall continued to be built, that phrase Gentile took on a very negative term in Israel's life. Not only did these people, they weren't, they were, they were, the Gentiles were not obeying God's law. And not only could they not obey God's law, they didn't have God's law. So in their eyes, there was no way Gentiles could be made righteous. There was no way that Gentiles could have relationship with God. They didn't even have what we have. So there was this idea of clean and unclean. They were unclean. And if I come in contact with unclean, I myself become unclean. And there's processes and all the things. So in, this, in, this, in a giant sense, you just did your best to avoid Gentiles. Not wanting to mess with any of the mess that came with it. Circumcision, a very uh, visual picture of being set apart. There was an understanding that I, we are other. We are not like the rest of the world in a very physical sense. This was a practice that they, they walked with. It was representative of God going, you are not like the rest of the world. You are different. You are other. You are my people. And circumcision was a very physical reminder of something that God established with these people. Jesus came with a message of rescue, and it started with the Jews. Their hearts were in need of repair. Their hearts were in need of turning and coming back to relationship with God. They had loved their behavior. They had loved their rules. They had loved checking off the boxes more than they actually loved God, which is the problem. Jesus actually has inter interactions with the religious leaders of the day that they had actually loved their obedience so much that they forgot about loving God and understanding what goes on in the heart. Jesus said these words. He said to them, you hypocrites. 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You and I can be obsessed with our performance. In fact, we can be so obsessed with the good that we do and the bad that we don't do, we actually walk in joy of that rather than the joy of relationship with God. This is what these people were forgetting. Jesus actually made it very clear. And I want to make clear here too, because there is confusion about why Jesus came. And Jesus actually said, don't misunderstand it. I love that he started this way. Why, do we mis- Why did he say it? Because we misunderstand it. Okay? Let's let Jesus clarify. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is talking about those people who are like, well, Jesus is just getting rid of the law. He thinks the law is dumb. He thinks the law is terrible. He's chucking it out. What's the deal? Jesus addresses this thought process in verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the the least commandment and teach others to do the same... You will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? What? Like, that should be our moment of, well, then who in the world can be saved? People would hear these words and look at the Pharisees and go, then I'm out. I'm done. There's no way my righteousness will ever come close to theirs, nor will it surpass theirs. Jesus actually said, you've got to have it, and it's better than theirs. Then kingdom is available. The disciples probably had many freak out moments when they heard Jesus teach these words. But I love in Matthew 19 when the the disciples are kind of freaking out about what they just saw with the rich young ruler and all that he did, the good that he did. And then he walked away and they were like, well, then who in the world can be saved? In Matthew 19, Jesus says these words. He looks at the, the disciples intently and he says, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Now, before we move on, I, I want to kind of do a little little quiz game type of thing. Um, and and to, not to oversimplify, but really just want to define this word righteous um, to be 100% without sin. Now there's much more to the idea of righteousness uh, in the scripture. It has a lot to do with relationship with God and that he's the one who keeps the covenant. He has done everything to keep relationship with us. So he is 100% righteous. And then there's us. Now, When would someone not be 100% righteous? Okay, here's the deal. You may run to, let's let, what most people do, they run to the Ten Commandments. They're like, well, I I have this, that, or the other. Well, let's just just keep it New Testament. Let's keep it New Testament, y'all. Jesus said to the man who asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that 100% of your life? good. I'm not alone. We haven't. So let's just keep it there. So if I haven't done those things, if I have loved myself more than God, I have loved myself more than my neighbor, 
according to scripture, that would actually be, I was going to write this backwards on myself, but I can't do it. That would actually make me unrighteous. Like there are a lot of people I know that'll say that they're good, but you start using the word righteous and everybody immediately goes, that's not me. That's good. That's good that you can say that. That's good that you can go, I don't think of myself as righteous. Good. Because we have to understand that is the bad news. Without, with, when I am walking around choosing to love myself and love more than God and love myself more than neighbor, I am actually walking in sin. Like it is sinful for me to do that. So all of us should be going, then who can be saved? Like every single one of us should be going, that's not me. That's the point of the law. It helps us see that we cannot save ourselves. I should never look at the Ten Commandments and go, I got that on lock. I should actually look at that and go, oh, woe is me. But yet we live in a country where everyone's saying, you better live by those. Or to be a Christian is to keep the Ten Commandments. Do you understand? This is not what Paul spells out for us in Galatians. He actually gives us the reason for the law. But I need you to understand, Christ righteous, me unrighteous, there's one thing. Christ followers, and this is where it gets very scary in the United States. There are many Christ followers in this country, maybe some of you in this church, who believe that if Jesus sinned, it would not be a big deal. It would be a huge deal. It would be disastrous if Jesus sinned. In fact, if there was ever evidence for Jesus sinning, you and I shut the doors, get on with our lives because he is no savior. Jesus is without sin. This is something Christ followers understood. It's what the scriptures teach. Hebrews 4, 15 says, This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 1 Peter 2, 22, He never sinned nor deceived anyone. 1 John 3, 5, And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Uh, Murray Harris, who is a New Testament scholar, said this, Although Christ was aware of the reality of sin and observed sin in others, he himself, Paul affirms, never had any personal involvement with sin. Neither outwardly in act nor inwardly in attitude did Christ sin. And at no time was his conscience stained with sin. George Guthrie, another New Testament scholar, says this. It was a widely disseminated tradition in earliest Christianity that Jesus was sinless. A claim made all the more pointed by the fact that many of the church's leaders were drawn from Jesus' family or closest associates. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never sought forgiveness. As much as he taught about the importance of forgiveness, Jesus is never once recorded asking for forgiveness from man or from God. In fact, at the cross, what did Jesus yell? Father, forgive them. This is a big deal. Jesus has to be sinless for us on our behalf. In fact, the Pharisees, they came up with ways to actually try and charge Jesus. And the worst they could charge Jesus with was blasphemy, saying he was God. Blasphemy, saying he could forgive sins. Now, those are sins if he is not God. But if he is God, he's just stating a fact. 
Jesus' sinlessness matters to you and me more than I think we realize. Thomas Oden put it this way. He said, those who have walked the furthest on the way to holiness are those likely to be most keenly aware of their own guilt. St. Teresa of Avila, for example, understood most acutely how distant she was from the full possibility of life in Christ. But it was not because she was living distantly from the life, but so near to it. This was not morbid preoccupation with guilt, but simply the expression of daily life lived so near to God that she was more painfully aware of each small increment of distance from God than others might have known in a lifetime. Yet Jesus, whose closeness to God could hardly be questioned, showed no evidences of such guilt or remorse or distance, but rather sustain the closest filial, that is a relationship between a father and son, daughter, mother, relation. Jesus' sinlessness matters to you and to me. Christians have understood that and continued with that voice, but Jesus wasn't sinless just to give us an example. See, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go, well, he was sinless. He did a lot of really great things. I should probably pay attention to be doing and trying and living exactly as Jesus did. He did not just live sinless to show us an example. So you remember this unrighteous, righteous situation. Here is why this matters. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. What happened on that cross for you and for me was an unthinkable act. And I am not just talking about his death on the cross. I'm talking about what is actually exchanged. See, what we have is we come to this scenario unrighteous. Yet Jesus in his righteousness, 100% sinless, me essentially 100% sinful because, you know, even if I decided today, having not been able to love God and love neighbor for my, for my life, even if I decided to do that today, And I was going to say, I'm going to love God with everything I have and love my neighbor as myself 100% of the time. I would still not be righteous. I would still be broken. What happens at the cross is super dramatic. And that this is what happens. And I know that's hard for some of you to think. Because all you're thinking about is what you've done, where you've been, what you've seen, what you've said, all the hurt that you've caused, all the things. You're like, there is no way I'm righteous. Friends, that's not humility. That's pride. It's to essentially say that what Jesus did is not enough to cover my life. What happened at the cross is not just a man dying, not just a man raising, but it is actually his life, perfect and sinless, counted over mine. This is huge. This is, for us, 
It is the power that allows us to live in community with God. It is the power that makes us stand righteous before the Lord, not looking at my works, not looking at my behavior, not looking at my acts, not looking at my lack of acts, but to look at Jesus and know what has been exchanged. He keeps, you keep going. You can hear Paul saying these words in Philippians 3, 9. I no longer, do you hear this? I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Romans 3, 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. This is what the Bible means when it says through one man's rebellion, Adam, sin comes flooding in and covers us all. And through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's what this means. So I'm not just looking at the cross going, oh, my debt has been forgiven. No, I've been credited something that is not my own. I have been given something that is not my own. And you know what that causes you to do? Just say thank you. It just causes you to go, God, you are so smart, first of all. Like, who could come up with a plan like this? Second, you are so good. Like, who would do that? Why would you do that? Why would you? This doesn't make any sense. And it's why the Jews hated it. The Greeks hated it. Everybody hated it because it was foolishness. But according to the scriptures, it is the power of God saving all those who believe. God living for us. Jesus coming and living for us what we could not live on our own. God did it on our behalf. His life matters. Jesus' sinlessness over our life does not just cover my sins, making it like I never sinned. Jesus' sinlessness actually makes it as if I'd always obeyed. Like as if I'd always lived in relationship with God the way I was meant to and lived in relationship with people the way I was meant to, even though I didn't. You know, for some of you that... that you know, that are adulting right now, you understand debt and a credit score, right? See, as a Christ follower, we always talk about my debt being forgiven. We don't talk about getting Jesus's credit score. Like, even if you, let's say you have $100,000 in debt, spread out, car, uh, credit card, house payment, all of those different things. And then let's say in one foul swoop, you pay that off. You know what happens? Your credit score doesn't get perfect again. You know, it takes time for that credit score to go back up and it can take a long time, but chances are you're going to get hit with something else and it's going to fall back down. The beauty of being credited something that's not ours is yes, our sins forgiven, our debt is paid, but we now have Jesus's perfect credit score. That's crazy. We have the standing not on our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness of right with God. Romans chapter four says this, but people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, 
but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. This is why we rejoice. This is why the good news is good. And I hope you understand why Paul is so hot about Peter getting up from that table. I know it seems so insignificant to us. Like he just chose not to eat with some people that weren't like him. You gotta understand when Peter's letting hypocrisy or fear of man or walls drive, it communicates a whole nother gospel. It says to those Gentile believers that you're not good enough. It builds walls where they were never meant to be. Jesus tore them down. And when we get up and we let the fear of man drive or we let hypocrisy drive, if we're actors, if we're professional actors and we say a good game and we talk a good game, but you know, everybody knows about actors not on screen. You fall in love with them on screen, but then in real life, it's a totally different story. This is what was happening and Paul had to shut it down quickly. Verse 14 of Galatians 2, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Paul's stop it is not based on behavior, but it's based on motive. And he immediately takes Peter to grace. He immediately helps Peter understand who we were and what God has done. Paul explains to Peter, dude, you and I both know our right standing with God. It's not based on what we do or don't do, but what Christ has done. And you getting up from that table communicates that somehow our works save us. There are not two gospel messages to two different people. Yes, there are two different people groups represented, but the message is the same. Salvation is by faith. Verse 15, listen to as he continues. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. He's trying to help him understand. Yeah, you have all the reason to kind of go, hey, I could do some works and it'll impress God more. And he's going, you and I, we're Jews. By birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Verse 16, yet. Big word, yet. We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. He says the same thing three times in one verse. Please tell me the point of what he's trying to say. We are not made right with God by obeying the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He says it three different ways. He says, yet we know. So there's an information side of it. Like we've all heard it. We've all heard that we're made right with God by faith. We've, our ears have heard it. But then he takes it a step deeper. We have believed that we are made right with God by faith and not by the law. And then he says, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. 
Three times in one verse, he says the same thing. And some of us still won't get it. That's how it works. Verse 17, he continues this way. He says, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. Listen, do you, this is what he's saying. He's saying it is truly sin for us to say, Jesus has saved me. Now I'm going to go live the law. Do you hear the significance of that statement? It's not Jesus saying, hey, set down the law. Now you're going to be marked a sinner because you've set down the law and trusted me. No, Jesus doesn't lead us into sin that way. Paul is saying what's actually sin is if we go, Jesus, I trust you for everything, but now I'm going to go live as if I don't. Now I'm going to go live and, 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 and try and earn God's approval. Like we're actually falling into sin because that's human pride going, I can do more to impress God than Jesus has done. Like this is shocking and it's true. But we live in such a generation that wants credit for everything. And what I mean by that is we are trying to communicate grace in a Fitbit generation. We want, I'm not going on a walk if I don't get steps for it. <laughs> like yesterday, I told Doreen and I sounded like an, a dum-dum. But I went on an early morning run and I had to be on a long run for Saturday. I looked down at my watch. I'm 30 minutes into my run. I'm giving myself the energy gel that I'm supposed to take every 30 minutes because Clay told me I had to. And, and so I take this energy gel every 30 minutes. I looked down at my watch. 30 minutes later, my watch does the same thing from the last 30 minutes. Somehow my watch paused and I lost 30 minutes of running. I was furious. I could not mentally get over that for the rest of my run. Like that I was not getting credits for the run miles that I know I went on. My body felt like it, it, it was doing the 30 minutes. But when I looked down at that watch and saw that I was not getting credit for those 30 minutes, furious. This is how silly we are. We are so hungry for credit. It's ridiculous. The power of the gospel is that it's not on us. Our righteousness has been credited to us. Christ's life counts as much as his death counts as much as his resurrection, counts as much as his return. It is all about Jesus. Nate, you and the team can come. Verse 19 is a very telling verse in Galatians. Paul confessing, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. This is saying what you think it's saying. Being a great rule keeper is not the same thing as living a life for God. In fact, it's when I stop trusting in the rule keeping and recognize that Jesus did it all perfectly I can actually begin to live a real life for him. 
This is the whole gospel. It's shocking. It's freeing. It's hope causing. It's stirring. It can be confusing. But Jesus came to announce another gospel, another message, another way. And it was a fulfillment, not a getting rid of. In fact, when I read that Old Testament, I grow more and more thankful for Jesus because I see just what I'm not able to keep up. The Old Testament promises a rescuer. The New Testament fulfills that promise in Jesus. What we know of the law is that it's not the way to God, but it reveals our deep need for him. This is what we know the scriptures would, command, would, would declare. Paul makes it clear. I don't think when I look at the law, I'm got, I got this. We actually believe I don't got this, but that God has us. Verse 20, probably one of his most famous, famously quoted, Christ-exalting words. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The secret to this life is that it's no longer ours. That is the secret to the Christ follower's walk. It's not mine anymore. It's a daily trust that Christ lives in me. It is not a spark. It is not the force. It is not a feeling, but it is the very presence of God dwelling in us. Paul's understanding wasn't about some impersonal God, but it was very personal and that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. Because he closes with verse 21. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. I hope you understand that if you live by the mantra that Jesus is one of the ways to God. There are other ways. You are declaring a monstrous God, in my opinion. Because if Jesus is one of the ways, God is a monster. Why let Jesus die if it could be any other way. In fact, Jesus said, come on, if there is another way, take it from me, but not my will, but yours. Jesus is not one of the ways to right relationship with God. He is the way to right relationship with God. And it is so good to know those things, that it is not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that covers me and invites me in. If the way to write with God is wrapped up in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then it's of utmost importance what I do with him. This morning as we close, are you running into sin because you are trying to live the Christian life without Jesus? Yes. 
Do you believe somehow you can live the Christian life minus Jesus? You like the morals. You like the structure. You like the laws. You like the boxes being checked. That's not relationship with God. It's why the Pharisees were confronted so intently. Or are you one who's, who said, I can't be saved because I've never done anything good or right. Trust the righteousness of Christ, not your own. God remedied this situation. Will you believe on Christ today? Would you have your righteousness or Christ's in the end? And friends, this is the heartbreaking reality of eternity. In that if you choose to stand in your own righteousness, you will have an opportunity to hold your resume up before a righteous God. At your last breath, you will have, if you have been standing on your righteousness and you continue to till the day you die through pride, through ignorance, through arrogance, you will have an opportunity to present your righteousness to a righteous God. And I want you to know it will fall short. You will not know the grace and the mercy and the rescue and the forgiveness of Jesus. You will know the wrath. You will know the justice. And you will know standing in front of a holy God in an unholy condition and it will be devastating. This is why we do not count on our righteousness, but on his. This is why the psalmist says, oh, what joy for the one whose record has been cleared. Put on Christ today. As we go to the corners of the room for communion, we are reminded that we have put on Christ. Christ's righteousness covers me. Christ's righteousness by faith, the gift that I do not earn, that I could not earn. This is the reminder this meal stirs in us. You and I, apart from our own, have been saved, have been made right. We'll find ourselves safe and sound. Do not put off trust. Take off all the law keeping, the requirements you're trying to do separate from Jesus and know him, his life, death, and resurrection. Father, we love you. And I, I pray that we would understand all that Paul tries to communicate in these very rich verses. These are things that take lifetimes to understand. And we have a moment, it seems, just to the tip of the iceberg. But if we have heard anything this morning, would we not stand on our righteousness? But would we fall, collapse, whatever it is, trip over into the righteousness of Christ? finding ourselves right with you, not by our works. It's in your name we pray.